Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 158 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Ashley Cox about hiring employees and independent contractors. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, FreshBooks, and Ruby Receptionists. We appreciate their support, and we will tell you more about them later in the show. So I figure today, with a conversation about kind of the logistics and process of doing a good job of hiring employees and bringing independent contractors into your firm, that it might be worth kind of reflecting on how lawyerist thinks about the same topic. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we're obviously not a law firm, but I think our approach to hiring is something that I've heard lots of lawyers actually talk about as well. And so I think it would be useful. We definitely have kind of an experimental iterative approach to how we think about our hiring process and that we're always kind of trying to tweak the interview questions and the application framework and how we do onboarding. And so that's kind of a living, growing thing. And I don't want to step too much on the toes of Ashley's interview and get into those nuts and bolts. But one thing we do as part of our HR system is we follow the traction EOS model of business management, which I know I've mentioned a couple of times kind of in passing on the show before. Traction is a book written by Gino Wickman that kind of lays out a business management framework for small growth-oriented companies. It talks about your company's goals and values and how you staff your company and how you set project goals and keep people accountable with metrics and KPIs. We've handed traction out at TBD Law and everyone I've heard from who's read it has been glowing about it. So I think if you are growth oriented, you should definitely check it out. Yeah. I mean, if you are a true solo with no team members, it still might be an interesting read to think about. (laughs) But if if you've got a team of either lawyers or staff, I absolutely think it's worth not just reading, but really, truly considering adopting in your firm. And we'll, in the next couple of months, be rolling out some additional content around our lawyerist thoughts on the best ways to manage your firm. And it'll be very much related to this. But on the topic of kind of people in your firm, um, the EOS model, which is the Entrepreneurial Operating System, which is the model that this book, <laughs> Traction, implements, full of buzzwords, great times, says, right people, right seats. And what that means is two things. The first is your firm having a set of core values that are the framework from which you operate, the way you approach your clients, the way you build culture on your team, and that these core values should truly actually be the framework that your business views its decision-making processes, including who to hire and who to fire, but also how to price your services and whether or not to do unbundled and how to do your marketing and intake, et cetera. And so with a set of defined core values, you then build your team around fit with those core values. And that is finding the right people. And you only want to have people who share your core values at your firm. And Ashley's going to talk a lot about that, but it's the right seats that I think is really yeah, interesting. Yeah. And so, and so the second part of a right people, right seats framework is to build out an org chart for your firm in the EOS vernacular. That's an accountability chart, but it's an org chart for your firm that clearly defines the roles of 
every part of your organization and whose responsibility it is to get that done. And I think in a lot of larger small firms, firms with five, 10 or more people, whether those are attorneys or not, I think often org charts become a really weird and confusing construct <laughs> with... We've had one for years with your name and my name in all of the boxes. Yeah, that, until, that was until the Until like yeah, two years sure. ago. Yeah. But I think at a lot of kind of <laughs> 10 or 15 person firms, whether those are attorneys or not, there's often this idea that there's maybe a managing partner or a committee of partners and then the other partners and then below those right. is associates and below those is support staff. But that is not a functional delineation of who is in charge of the marketing functions of this firm, who is in charge of the client legal services delivery functions of this firm, who is in charge of the admin operations of this firm, et cetera, and that building that out as far as functional accountabilities is a much more strategic way to think about the framework of the people in your firm. And then for each of those roles to really clearly lay out what the accountability metrics or role functions are there so that the head of marketing is in charge of all of our reputation management, all of our paid advertising, all of our community sponsorships, all of our what bar journal, whatever um, those things are, that becomes the right seats idea. And there are a couple of kind of nuances in the EOS model, which is that each seat can only have one person in it but potentially one person can have more than one seat. And so in this framework, only one person can be in charge of marketing for your firm, mm -hmm. and only one person can be in charge of legal services delivery for your firm, which does not mean that multiple people don't do that. If you've got 10 attorneys, they are all delivering legal services, but one person has to be in charge of making sure that that machine is working according to the goals and values of your firm, and that only one person can have that seat in this model, which means that potentially kind of the partner committee structure starts to have problems there where you've got everyone having a voice, but no one actually being accountable. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you then implement this and draw this out, it creates some kind of interesting aha moments and epiphanies of, hey, it turns out we've got a couple of people who don't fit the core values of this firm now that we've defined them great people. We've really liked working with them, but they can't be a part of taking this where it's going to go unless they can kind of change their attitude towards those values. Um, and so that becomes a wrong person issue. Regardless of whether or not they're in the right seat. Right. And, yeah. they, and again, they might be good people. It's not that they're bad people. It's that you have to have clear distinctions about what it means to be part of this culture based on those values, if you mean it. And then the other concept is right seats, which is you could have someone who you know needs to be a part of your team and they are currently your finance manager or your lead paralegal or your managing partner. And it turns out that they do not have the skill sets to implement the roles that need to be implemented by the person in that seat. And that means you either need to find a new seat for them that makes sense for the needs of your organization move them to a seat that is appropriate for their skills and interests, or even though they're a great person, they can't be a part of your organization because they don't fit in it. And it's a really great exercise that often leads to some really difficult and hard conversations, but they are the difficult and hard conversations that make the difference between 
having a team all aligned in the same direction and being accountable for the things the firm needs or not. I think it's really helpful when when you're wondering, like, something's not right here. You know, what's not working? And it allows you to kind of take a step back and look at it from with a little bit of altitude rather than they're not doing what I want them to, which is usually the wrong approach. <laughs> or, you know, lots of you, what you really ought to do is what am I doing as a manager that's not getting the results that I want? But even that's pretty hard to do, too. Right person's right seats lets you st- take a step back and go, well, wait, like, do they just not fit at this company? Are, are we are our values not aligned? Or if they, if we're pretty confident that they do, we're just not giving them the right role, um, and and it really helps clarify everything. I think so. That's some backdrop for the conversation we're going to have with Ashley. Um, first, we've got a brief sponsored interview with Scott Classen about the advantages of fixed fees, and then we'll hear from Ashley. My name is Scott Clayson. I'm the director of marketing for TimeSolve Corporation, which provides billing and timekeeping and project management solutions for law firms of all sizes. Cool. Thanks, Scott. Good to talk to you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So you have just put together a white paper about five benefits to going fixed fees, and I thought it would be a good place to start to talk about what are we even talking about with fixed fees? Because people use all kinds of terms, flat fees, fixed fees, cap fees. Um, What kind of fees are are you talking about and how should we be thinking about that? Mainly probably what most other people think about. The idea that before you start on a case with your client, you tell them exactly how much it's going to cost. When when my father-in-law died a couple of years ago and my wife and I were dealing with his estate, we found an estate attorney in the city where he lives in. And up front, he said it's going to cost X amount of money for all this work that I'm going to have to do. And it was a flat fee, fixed fee. It's the idea of just presenting the, the total fee for the work as best you can up front before you start the work. Gotcha. So, I mean, why? What's so great about fixed fees as opposed to if people are still billing by the hour? Give us the benefits. Well, if you if you think about it, kind of some of the downsides of, of hourly billing, there's, there's really no incentive to be efficient in your work. You know, the more efficient you are, if you get something done in two hours, it used to take you three hours in the sense as a lawyer for charging hourly you're losing income. So it it doesn't promote that efficiency. If you do establish a fixed fee, it's going to force you to be more efficient in the work that you're doing, allows you to make sure you assign the appropriate work for the appropriate person in your firm so that you don't have an attorney who normally charges $200 an hour doing the same work that a para could do at $100 an hour or whatever it might be. Um, That's one, you know, kind of obvious benefit. The other is that if you can establish up front before you start the matter and you can lay out here are all the things I'm going to be doing for year for you and here's what it's going to cost that establishes a trust factor I think from the client's point of view that you know exactly what you're doing here's the value they are going to provide for the work that's done and it starts the matter off on the right foot and not having somebody just say well geez, I don't know exactly how much it's going to cost. We have to wait till we get in and do it. Um, I had a guy who came in totally different industry, look at my chimney to restucco it. Had a couple of different people come out. One guy said, I don't know how much it's going to cost. Oh, you know, I know it's going to, we'll start at about three grand, but depending on what we find, it could go up to 20 grand. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I don't like that. And another guy <laughs> came along and he said, he looked at it and he said, I'll do it for whatever it was, like five grand or something. I'll redo the chimney. Boom. He did it, got the work done. And I saw that value right up front. You know, uh, the efficiency in particular is one that really resonates with me. Like, I know that lawyers think, well, I can be more efficient even while I bill by the hour. But A, you don't have any incentive to because fewer hours means less money. But also just I think when you commit to a fixed fee, it rewires your brain to look for other ways to get to the same outcome. And it really does change the way you run your business and serve your clients. 
So, Scott, what's your best pitch for why lawyers should not be afraid of fixed fees and should go ahead and give them a try? I, I think the, you know, if lawyers have been burned in the past as to like I presented a fixed fee and I lost my shirt on it, the way you can kind of get around that obstacle is lay out, do project management. I mean, it's not something a lot of lawyers I think think about, but sit down and for, if you've done, if you're a family law, you know, attorney and you've done divorce, you know, 50 million divorces in your life, you know, you know, the tasks that have to be done and you can probably do it in your head, but write it down somewhere, figure out exactly how many hours it's going to take for each task and then just do the math of, okay, if I know it takes me two hours at this and I normally charge this rate, this task is going to cost me $500 or what it might be. Roll it up into a budget and that's your fixed fee. And then you can present that to, to your client and you feel confident that that's the right number. They feel confident because of the reasons we had just talked about. And I think you'll find that a lot of lawyers will get over that hurdle is whatever system or tools you have, whether it's an Excel file, whether it's your billing system, figure out a way to lay out all your tasks, assign your rate to it, and then track in real time. So you can really tell, does it really take me two hours to do this task? I always thought it did, but as it turns out, it usually takes me three. And then you learn and grow and iterate from there. That's good stuff. So if you want to learn more about TimeSolve, you can learn more at TimeSolve.com. That's TimeSolve.com. Uh, and TimeSolve will obviously help you do the things we've been talking about. Uh, you can get the white paper, which has three more benefits to going with fixed fees, at timesolve.com slash fixed fee. timesolve.com slash fixed fee, all one word. Thanks so much, Scott. I appreciate it, Sam, for, for having me and, uh, and really enjoyed the podcast. Thank you very much. My name is Ashley Cox, and I'm the HR partner for entrepreneurs and small business owners at Sprout HR. I help you hire, train, and lead your profitable team. I spent over a decade in corporate HR, and I bust through the red tape and kicked off my corporate heels and said, you know what? These small business owners really need someone who can guide them on the journey of hiring and growing their teams and their businesses. I love working with small businesses and navigating the unique problems they have and really helping them grow that team and scale their business. Hi, Ashley. I'm so glad you're with us today. Hi, Sam. So nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. So I'm curious, just as a preliminary matter, is sort of outsourced HR a common thing? I, I don't think I've heard of other people doing it. Maybe I'm just out of touch with that. You know, it's interesting because it is in what is typically defined as a small business. So any business that's under 500 employees, but it's not in this really micro business world where we're working with teams that are hiring only one to 10, 15, even 20 employees. Um, so I've really kind of found an area that didn't have very much representation in the world of HR. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're we are a small business in that size range, and I guess we've just always done it as ourselves, and it never really occurred to me to look outside for help with HR. Yeah, I definitely spend a lot of time educating my audience, um, just getting in front of them and kind of talking about the importance of doing the HR things correctly in your business to avoid, you know, making the government upset or um, ending up in situations that could cost you a lot in liability or in various. Um, lawsuits and things like that. So it is still a very new niche, but uh, it takes a lot of educating. But people are really starting to understand a little bit better 
you know, the types of things that I can help them with and that I can drastically reduce their learning curve in so many areas. So one last question before we jump into talking about the hiring process, because I'm curious. So what is what is working with you look like? Do you work on an hourly rate or um, kind of on a monthly fee or what is it? What does it end up looking like? I actually work on a project by project basis. So I don't nickel and dime people to death with hourly rates um, because some projects are going to take a little bit longer. They're a little more complex and some are going to take a little less time. And depending on what's going on inside the company as well. Um, so I, I really kind of have three packages that when you come and you say, hey, I'm getting ready to hire an employee or I need some leadership development training or can you help me you know, navigate these compliance issues that I can just say, okay, here you go. This is how we're going to handle that and this is the rate that you're going to pay. Very cool. I'm interested in, I'm asking all of these questions in part because of my own curiosity for our company, um, but also for the benefit of others. And that includes talking about the hiring process now. You know, as, as some of our listeners know, we are actively hiring and have been for about the last year and it's not stopping and, and we're trying to figure out the hiring process for ourselves. But when I was at, had my own firm uh, and when I talked to other lawyers, I know that hiring isn't necessarily something that people give a lot of thought to. And so I'd love to kind of walk through from a nuts and bolts perspective, the hiring process and how it works. Absolutely. I'd love to. Great. Um, and I heard you on, I, I should start with, I heard you talking with Nicole Abood on her Leaders Love Company podcast. And we're going to try not to repeat what you talked about there because that was a really great podcast that I actually just re-listened. But I do want to start at the beginning of the process. And one of the things that I found striking was... Um, when you tried to start talking about, okay, so let's say you're ready to hire and you kind of said, hold on, back up. You've got some work to do before you post a job. So um, what do we need to do to get ready to hire? This is such a great question. And it's the thing that people don't really think about until they're in the thick of the hiring process. But there's a lot of things that you can do to set yourself up and your business up for success when you're starting to hire a team. And one of the best things that I can, can tell you is to really get clear on what your mission of your company is. Because it's going to be awful hard to hire a team if you're not able to clearly articulate what your mission and your vision and the direction that your company is going looks like. People want to be part of something that is bigger than themselves. And you as the leader, as the CEO, are the visionary. And you, you get the opportunity to walk that candidate or that new hire through your vision and help paint the picture of how they're going to play an important role in your company. Part of that means having a mission statement, having a vision statement, having core values that you can kind of rely on as your uh, guiding light, if you will. Those are really, really important parts. So this is kind of a new, uh, or maybe maybe it's not new, maybe it's just something that people haven't been thinking about, but when I first started hiring, I thought purely in terms of the tasks that I wanted somebody to perform. I wanted somebody who was competent to perform certain tasks. And I'll be honest, I didn't have a whole lot of luck hiring long-term people that way. Um, but you're saying, I think that sort of somebody who shares your vision and your values and I even throw culture into the mix there is more important than their ability to perform tasks. Yeah, because we can teach people tasks. We can send people to training for tasks, but we can't teach somebody heart and soul. We can't teach them uh, the types of qualities or characteristics that they need to be successful in the type of company we're going to lead. And when you think about it, every company has a different personality. And that's all that culture is, is what's the personality of your company? And how do we find people that are going to align with that culture so that they're happy, 
because happy people are productive people. And so that they stay long-term with you because they feel good and they resonate with the mission and, and the culture and the core values that you have. So if someone's listening to this and they don't have, uh, well, I mean, everybody has values, right? They might just not have written them down in a coherent form. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's the thing. It doesn't have to be a long drawn out process. It doesn't need to be overly complicated. You just need to sit down and think about what is important to me. What's important for my team members to embody? Is it service excellence? How are we going to take care of our customers? Is it, uh, you know, leadership? Do you want your team members to be uh, self-driven and take a lot of initiative and really lead uh, in their projects. And so when you sit down and you really just think through what are my top, you know, five or six core values, those will help give you so much perspective in determining who you really need on your team in order to reach the goals that you've set for yourself. Okay. So, so let's say we've, we've done that and we've talked about mission and values on some other podcasts and on the site. And so, um, hopefully there's some resources that, um, people can go to, to figure that stuff out if they haven't already. Um, and you, we're going to have a giveaway, uh, a worksheet that you've put together on this podcast. So check the show notes to, to find Ashley's worksheet on uncovering your company's core values. Um, we'll make sure that you get that. So let's say you've done that. You have your values and you're sitting down in front of a blank uh, Word document or Google Doc trying to write your job posting. What needs to be in there? Well, now you need to focus on the tasks. So now we need to figure out what exactly does this person need to be doing? And I will tell you that the best approach is not everything under the sun that you don't want to do in your business. Um, a lot of times people get carried away with their job postings and they've got, you know, 50 tasks on there. And I'm like, really, would you sign up for this job? So you want to keep your tasks limited to about 10 to 12 tasks on your job posting. And those could be things like general office or administrative duties, like managing email, answering phone calls, uh, filing documents, keeping up with our, you know, client onboarding, etc. And it could be more, um, you know, specific things where you have them using certain tools or programs. You need them to be uh, maybe helping you market the business. But one thing that you need to focus on is don't make their job so broad that you really could just cast your reel in the ocean and hope to pull out a fish. You want to make sure that if you're fishing for rainbow trout, you're in a stream, you're not in the ocean, right? And I'm not a fisherman or a fisherwoman, but I always think that that just makes so much sense because we have to be able to identify specifically what we need this person to do in order to even find them. So we've got to get clear on that first. Um, so the important parts of your job posting are going to be getting super clear on those job tasks and making sure that you're putting down anything that you absolutely require of this person. Do they need to have a degree? Do they need to have a certain certification? Do they need to have an advanced knowledge of a certain program or a skill? One of the things that we did, uh, we started doing this a few years ago when it was just a few of us, um, was we put together an organizational chart for the company. And we've kept that updated and every quarter we revisit it. And so when we hire, we hire for, you know, the, the job that we've already sort of defined on the organizational chart. And I, we found that helpful. I, does that sound like something that's a useful exercise to you? I mean, because I think it helps us get away from, I want somebody to do all of these disparate things to, I want somebody to sit in this chair. Yes, I love that. I love that you guys had the foresight to do an org chart and to really kind of define the position before the person was there. A lot of times what happens is 
we'll bring on friends or family, or we'll bring on this person or that person. And they kind of have these hodgepodgey jobs. And then we try to go back and go, oh, well, let me try to define the roles. Well, now you're having a hard time separating the person from the job Mm -hmm. and what they're specifically good at versus what you actually need. So as much as you can be proactive and thinking through, okay, eventually we're going to need somebody to focus on social media marketing and outreach. We're going to need somebody who's going to focus on client relations and onboarding new clients. We're going to need somebody to focus on XYZ. Um, I think that will definitely help you have a better chance of hiring the right people for your business up front. One thing I would add to that is to prioritize those needs as well. There's always things that we don't want to do, right? But it doesn't necessarily mean that those are the right tasks to delegate at the right time because you want to get the most return on your investment when you're hiring a team. And whether that's a contractor or that's an employee, it doesn't matter. You just need to figure out what do I need to get off my plate the most that either it's a task I don't like, it's a task that takes me way too much time to do, and I know I could hire somebody to do it better or faster, or it's a task that I do love doing, but it still takes a lot of my time. The thing is, when we're working on tasks in our business that we're not good at, or that takes us a really long time to do, it's diminishing our actual wage rate, basically, that we're paying ourselves. Am I working on tasks that are CEO level, or am I working on tasks that are entry-level employee? Um, So taking it kind of from that perspective also will help you figure out which tasks you should be spending your time on versus delegating out and finding the right person to do for you. Okay, so we need to take a few minutes to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to talk about the next stage. How do you figure out who's a good candidate? So we'll be right back. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars, LawPay. Being a self-employed lawyer is hard enough, which is why dealing with your day-to-day paperwork on top of it all shouldn't have to be. FreshBooks makes ridiculously easy-to-use cloud-based time and billing software that will help you work smarter, get paid faster, and become more organized. With FreshBooks invoicing, you can create and send polished professional invoices effortlessly in mere seconds. FreshBooks can set you up to receive payments online, which can seriously improve how quickly you get paid. You can track your time either by using their mobile app or your desktop, meaning you'll always know what work you did, when you did it, and who you did it for. There's also a super handy deposit feature so you can invoice for a payment upfront when you're kicking off a project. To feel the full impact of how FreshBooks can change the way you deal with your paperwork, FreshBooks is offering our listeners a 30-day free trial. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. Ruby Receptionist is a live remote receptionist service that is dedicated to helping lawyers win clients and build trust one happy caller at a time. From their offices in Portland, Oregon, Ruby's friendly professional receptionists ensure exceptional client experiences by answering calls live in English or Spanish, transferring calls, taking messages, collecting new client intake, addressing common questions, making outbound calls for you, and more. Just like an in-house receptionist at a fraction of the cost. More importantly, they sound like they're sitting in your office. For a special offer, visit callruby.com slash lawyerist2018 or call 844-715-7829. That's 844-715-RUBY. 
Okay, we're back. So Ashley, let's say we did a good job of describing the position and we threw it up on all the job boards we could think of and, and applications are flooding in. How do we cull them down to a manageable level? How do we decide who is an actual good candidate that we should take to the next step? That's a great question. First of all, don't post your job on every available job board out there. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, so what I always suggest to my clients do is once we know who that ideal candidate is, we need to look for them where they are. It's just like looking for your ideal client. You have an idea of exactly who you want to work with in your business and you go find them where they are. Same thing with shopping for new hires. We need to find them where they are. So if you're looking to hire an experienced, you know, five to 10 year person, you're not going to go look at college interns, right? Mm -hmm. So first we have to find where those people are and really specifically target them with our job postings. Then we can determine who our best candidates are with a couple simple steps. One thing I love to do is to give a very specific instruction in the job posting because nine times out of 10, people don't read. And you can really call through people who are sloppy, who don't pay attention to detail, and who might not be a good fit for the type of job you're hiring for by simply inserting something that says, when applying for this job, put this title in the subject line. Nothing really tricky. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Just a yeah. simple instruction. Yeah. And so that way, if they don't follow that instruction, they immediately just go to the hold pile. We don't want to get rid of them completely because we don't know if we're going to get you know, really high quality candidates who just happen to know how to follow directions well, but we at least want to give ourselves some breathing room to kind of look through who can actually follow directions from the very first step. Well, and I suppose if you, if you have used one of those websites where people can basically, um, air quotes, apply for a job yes. by clicking a button to apply, <laughs> you'll, you'll immediately know who wants the job versus who is just clicking buttons. Yes, the internet is a blessing and a curse and all the technology that comes with it. <laughs> but when you're sitting and you're receiving, you know, hundreds of applications for a job, you've got to find a way to be able to sort through those and following directions is one of the best ways. Now, the next thing that I would definitely suggest doing is making sure that the person who's applying meets at least the minimum qualifications that you've listed in your job posting. Do they have the certification or the education do they know the tools or the systems or the programs and really setting those candidates aside? They followed instructions and they have the minimum qualifications. And I promise that that will weed out so many applicants that you can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. Let, uh, okay, so we've, we've culled our pile. Uh, we have a reasonably manageable number of people to interview I don't know, three, five, 10. What's the point of interviews? What are we trying to do with those? We are trying to figure out if this person is going to be a great fit for the company, the culture that we have, and for the position that we're hiring for. And here's my thing, Sam. I really, really don't like it when people are like, oh, I'm hiring this person to be an administrative assistant. I always look to hire that person for three jobs ahead of that. Hmm. Where can they go? Can they be somebody that I can groom, that I can coach, that I can train, and that I can help become a really invaluable asset to my company? Because if you're always just hiring for the administrative assistant or that entry-level employee, that's the only type of workers you're going to get. You're not going to have the pipeline to really continue to build your business from within. And when you hire for three steps ahead, you can also provide them with an opportunity to grow with your business. One of the things about the millennial generation and Gen X, 
are that they are looking for opportunities to grow with companies, to do bigger, better, more exciting jobs. And when you can offer them the opportunity to grow along with you and you can show them that opportunity and you can show them the vision of where you want your company to go, that's when you're going to hire employees that are going to be so much more excited, so much more productive. They're going to feel like a part of the team and they are going to bend over backwards for you as long as you take care of them. You know, one of the things that I am looking for, and, and maybe this is a little silver bullety, but one of the things I'm trying to figure out is like at our company, we really need self-starters, people who can take initiative. We don't really have jobs, right? No, Nobody is going to be your manager and tell you what to do. And then you're going to spend all week doing that thing and go home. We have things that we need to get done and we need people who are just going to go and figure out how to get those things done and achieve the goals that we have. Like it, we're not really hiring for jobs. We're asking people to take it, um, to take on an opportunity. And what I'm trying to figure out is how in, in maybe in the interview, maybe before it, how do I get people to understand that if they're looking for a job, I want them to freak out and realize this is not for them and bail. <laughs> you know <laughs> well, what I mean? Sometimes you have to scare people out of the job yeah, before that's you what I mean. sell them into it. Um, and what I mean by that is, yeah, you really have to tell them the things that are either going to make them sit up and pay attention and say, oh my gosh, this is an incredible opportunity or sit back and go, uh, I just want somebody to just tell me what to do. And I do that job and I go home and I don't have any responsibilities. Um, so, you know, in the interview process and even, even in the job posting, really making it clear that this position is going to be uh, a self-starter and that they're going to be taking initiative and, you know, relying on being able to prioritize their own day and their own schedule to accomplish the goals. Um, there's definitely interview questions that you can ask to ascertain whether or not that candidate is going to be a good fit for that. And part of that is is behavioral-based interviewing. And I'm not sure if you've heard of that before, Sam, mm -hmm. or if that's the type of interviewing you guys use, but it's basically finding out if a candidate is a good match for the job based on their past behavior, because past behavior is incredibly predictive of future behavior. And when you use behavioral-based interviewing, you're not hearing what you want to hear. You're hearing what you need to hear. So asking a question... So say more about that. Like, what is to what, what should the questions look yeah, like? Yeah. So instead of asking a question like, are you a self-starter? Which obviously, if I'm trying to get this job, I'm going to say, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you want to ask a question that sounds something like, tell me about a time where you took the initiative on a project that you saw was falling behind. And then you ask probing questions around that. Well, what was the project? And how did you know that it was falling behind? Why did you step in to take that? Was this in your department? Was it in someone else's department? What did your manager think when you took over this project? How did it turn out? What were the results that you got? So you're asking all of these questions because it's really hard to keep a lie up for that long. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. So if they haven't, if they haven't actually taken the initiative, you'll see them fidgeting around trying to come up with answers to all these questions you're peppering them with. Um, so that's also kind of a, a test that you can use to see if somebody's being truthful with you or if they're if they're squirming in their seat a little bit. So I've got some sort of tangents I want to go on at this point, which is, first of all, is what if we think we already know? You, you've mentioned friends and family a few times, and, and I told you I wanted to, to hit on this question, but like sometimes you, you know you want to hire somebody you know. 
And how should you still post the job? Um, how, how do you how do you sort of objectively figure out whether your best friend or your acquaintance or your cousin would actually be a good fit for this job um, and separate that out from just I want to do something nice for this person who I love? And should you post the job anyway? Yeah, you know, I tell people to avoid hiring friends and family as much as possible because it usually <laughs> does not end well. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's it's just not a good it's not a good idea because you have a hard time creating those new boundaries. I'm the boss, you're the worker. How does this work when you're my mom or you're my sister or you've been my best friend for 15 years? Um, so the first thing you can do is, is kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, Sam, with really defining the position before we have the people in mind. And what do we need in the business? And does this person actually match this job posting? Or am I just, you know, being a softy and, and trying to give this person a job because I know they need help. Um, so when we can get really clear on what we actually need in our business versus just being, we're not a charitable organization, right? right? We're trying to make a profit. We're trying to help people. And so we have to make sure that we're making smart business decisions. This isn't about whether, whether or not we like Aunt Francis, but it's about making a smart business decision. So getting clear on the job first, making sure that that person actually meets or exceeds those qualifications. If they do, I wouldn't waste time posting a job because it's kind of just like dangling bait out there for people who aren't going to have the opportunity mm -hmm. to work for you. So if you are pretty certain that you want to hire this person, I really wouldn't take, I really wouldn't get anybody else excited about the opportunity um, because then it's just going to be like, well, why do you even post this job? <laughs> quick, quick aside, by the way, to the, to the friends who currently work for my company, um, this is totally not like some <laughs> passive aggressive thing about you. <laughs> I love you. I love, I love working with you. Oh my goodness. I love it. And there's a lot of times that it does work out really well, but it sounds like you had a clear plan in place yes. before you really just dove headfirst into hiring, which a lot of people just don't. So if you can get a clear plan in place and you have amazing friends who fit those needs, then go for it. Um, but one thing that I would highly recommend if you're going to hire friends and family is to make sure you have a clear job description and that you set expectations and boundaries from day one. Yeah. So um, a sort of related question, and, and I've been noodling on this for a long time. I believe that it's really important for small firms to take diversity and inclusion into account in hiring. And I think um, this sort of dovetails with the friends question because we often do hire people we know um, or we hire referrals from people that we know. And, you know, our, our friends tend and family tend to look like us. And so I've been trying to figure out, you know, like if you may only hire one or two or three people in your in the entire existence of your your firm, how, how do you think about diversity and inclusion? Um, that, that seems, you know, why, why shouldn't I hire the people who I already know, like, and trust? But, um, if we do that, aren't we just perpetuating, uh, a little bit of a homogenous firm, uh, environment. And so I've been, I've been trying to, trying to help people think about that and think about it myself. I love that you are so focused on diversity and inclusion and, and really making sure that you're considering that when you are hiring your team, whether you're hiring one or whether you're hiring 50 people, it should always be something that we keep in the forefront of our minds. Um, we can only serve our clients as good as we are. And if we are just one homogenous group of individuals, we have a hard time serving a diverse population. Um, so I would definitely recommend when you are Well, and not hiring, to mention all of the studies that show that 
uh, diverse teams make better decisions and are more competitive. So like, oh, I think there's gosh. so there's many advantages so many to diversity studies. that have nothing to do with yeah. just doing oh, yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I wrote a blog post not long ago that talked about why diversity is so important for your team and how it talks about, uh, you know, creating a company that really outperforms every other company. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I would definitely consider is when you go to hire, be very conscientious about posting your job, not just in places where your friends and family and people who look like you will go and find those jobs, but consider posting at historical black colleges and universities. Um, they have incredible career services programs and alumni programs that connect their students with job opportunities. Um, look for opportunities to really expand your own circle of friends. Maybe there's a networking event that you can go to that's maybe a little outside of your comfort zone and you can meet people who don't look like you. So that way you can go ahead and start expanding your network and inviting people in who don't look like you. Um, if you're hiring one person and you're, and you're, only able to keep that one person, sometimes it's a great idea to do focus groups with diverse groups of people where you specifically call in um, a company to help you put together a focus panel or uh, a group of individuals that are made up of men and women and people of color and being able to give you some perspective in your business if you're not hiring a huge team of people. So that way you get that voice of diversity and of inclusion, um, even if you're not able to have a large team. And and here's another thing that we didn't address. There's all kinds of legal issues around independent contractors versus employees. But um, if you think you're going to be hiring an independent contractor, should you should you basically maybe post the job, but vet them and interview them in the same way that you would if you're hiring an employee? Absolutely. The great thing is that you have an opportunity to say, this is exactly what I need help with. And if those contractors are interested and able to help you, they can say, Hey, I can do all those things. And then you guys can kind of negotiate the contract from there. But interviewing those people is really just as critical as interviewing your employees, because you want to make sure that you've got the right person, that they actually have the skills that they say they have, and that they can help your business in the way that you envision. Um, I actually just hired a VA agency for myself, virtual assistant, and I went through the interview process just like I walk my clients through. I created the job. I, I understand what I need. These are the things that I need help with. Um, obviously, you're not going to have things in there where you know you are going to be expected to provide me a report every day, um, you know, because you can't control exactly how they do their job. But you might be able to request, hey, you know, I'd love to have a report on this every day. Is that something that you would be willing and able to provide? Um, so some of it's going to be more negotiable with a contractor versus an employee, um, but you still want to have a clear vision of what type of jobs are they going to be doing and how are they going to be helping you so that way you can find the right match. Um, I interviewed a handful of VA agencies, about four, and decided on uh, the VA agency that I went with after you know, making sure that we ticked all the boxes off and that they could do the work that I needed help with. So, all right. Awesome. So let me lead us back to where we sort of left off, which was um, we've done our interviews and maybe this is, maybe I've moved this into the wrong place, but um, how should we talk about salary and, and negotiate salary? And when should we start bringing that up? Should it be in the job posting? Should it be in the interview? Should it be after the interview? 
And how do we avoid perpetuating, you know, the the gender disparity in salaries? I love this question. I think this is a fantastic question. Um, with contractors, I would definitely have a budget up front and put it out there because you don't want a bunch of contractors applying for your job if they're going to be incredibly out of your league. Um, so with contractors, I always suggest just put your budget out there. Hey, I'm looking to hire, you know, a virtual assistant for no more than you know, $500 a month, whatever it is. Um, so that way you really get more candidates that are um, going to be able to meet your needs. With employees, I generally say that if it is an hourly position, that you put your hourly rate out there. If it is a salary position, I would be really careful here because there might be some room for negotiation depending on their specific experience level and, and some different factors that they might bring into it. Like if they want vacation time versus extra salary, or you guys have flexibility with benefits or things like that. Um, so with the salary, I would say starting at, you know, $50,000 a year or starting at $75,000 a year um, and kind of just leave it there. So that way they have an idea of range. Um, because I always feel like being transparent with our team is just a good practice in general. And that always starts with the job process and hiring the right person and making sure that we're being um, fully transparent with the process and how much people are getting paid and, and all of these things. Um, if you don't have anything to hide, then it's not hard to put it out there. Um, but if you're worried about um, kind of gender disparity and things like that, I definitely suggest pulling some data from your area uh, based on, you know, what is the average salary that somebody in this position is making or what's the hourly wage rate? Um, and that will help give you some guidance on, okay, am I in the ballpark? Am I out of the ballpark? And then from there, if you have a sliding scale, if you're starting at $50,000 and they could potentially earn up to, you know, $62,000, what does that scale look like? What are the qualifications that will have them making $50,000 versus $62,000. Um, and just really being super clear, like education, if they have a master's degree versus a four-year degree, or they have a PhD versus a master's degree, how does that impact pay? And a lot of times going off of what somebody has made in the past is a bad practice. Because yeah, because it just perpetuates the, the imbalances. They're coming from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So you need to really just kind of sit down and figure out what's your budget? How much can you afford? What are people in this industry, in this specific position uh, making in your market? Not, you know, like I'm in Northeast Tennessee. I wouldn't want to, you know, create my pay scale on New York City or LA or Chicago. That doesn't make sense for me. And vice versa. New York would not want to look down here and say, wow, we can get away with paying them $7.25 when, you know, their minimum wage is $15 an hour. Um, so obviously you have to take into consideration the minimum wage laws, but you want to make sure that you're building your compensation practices smartly and without looking at your neighbor's paper. <laughs> um, you know, and what do you think about uh, these attempts by companies like Buffer, for example, that are that just they, they throw negotiation out the window and they say, look, here's what we're paying and, and they publish their algorithm. It's based on. Uh, you know, public databases of salaries, um, location, cost of living, and then they apply modifiers to some jobs. And, and so you, when you apply for the job, you more or less know what your salary is going to be. Everybody at the company knows what everybody else's salary is, and it's all calculated according to um, theoretically objective criteria. Does that make sense or is that the wrong direction? 
I really like that approach. It kind of comes back to what I was saying, Sam, with transparency. Um, if everybody knows what everybody makes, there's no room for uh, somebody to feel like they didn't get the same chance or they didn't, the process wasn't fair. When we interject human bias into things, that's when stuff starts to go off the rails, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're all biased in some way or another, whether or not we think we are, we all have these these inbuilt or ingrained biases. And it's hard to say, oh, well, this person was just really bubbly and upbeat and I think they're worth more money versus this person was just really kind of plain and they didn't smile a whole lot. And that person may actually be way more qualified than the bubbly, upbeat person. Um, so it, it depends on you know what you want to do in your own practice. But I really feel like basing it on data, being very transparent, having it outlined to where there's no room for people to make biased judgments um, is a really, really good practice. Do you have um, favorite places to go find typical salaries? I I know of Glassdoor and um, there's another one I can't think of the name of off the tip of my tongue, but um, are there there great places that have that information? You know, it's, I wish there was a really amazing place that just focused on capturing all of this data that I that I have right <laughs> off the top of my head. I get a lot of my numbers from um, some HR organizations that I'm in. So obviously, those are things that uh, only I can access. But I definitely think Glassdoor is a good place to start. Um, you know, really kind of Googling some things in your own area, because a lot of times local government will actually put together that data for the local area. So reaching out maybe to your chamber of commerce or your city um, to see if they have some of that data for your area is also a great option for you um, because there's not one national organization that really focuses on having up-to-date, accurate information on every city across the country. Um, So really trying to focus locally uh, with your Chamber of Commerce and some of those organizations can really help you get better data. Gotcha. By the way, is there any trick to extending the offer? Like you just say like, um, we'd like to hire you and here's the salary or are there some words that you ought to use when you're making that offer? Well, I always recommend having an official offer letter. You definitely want to be able to give the candidate something that has the wage rate, the start date, any benefits, any perks, any anything that you might want to really make sure that they have a clear understanding of um, before they walk in the front door. You know, if you have a probationary period or uh, if there's some expectations that they have to meet right away, um, like a drug test or a background check and things like that, that it's all clearly outlined in the offer letter. And then usually what I always do is just, hey, congratulations, we would love to offer you this position. Here are the details. And then after I go over the details, I want you to ask me any questions that you have. So that way we can make sure we're on the same page. Um, And then what you can do is just go through that offer letter with them uh, and then send them a copy of that and have them sign it and send it back to you because you want to make sure that they agree to the terms of the offer and you have a document that really helps to solidify that relationship. So what if they say no? What if you offer the job to them and they turn it down? (laughs) this question because it happens. It absolutely 100% happens. Um, You know, you have your heart set on a candidate and they are the most amazing candidate and you're excited and you get on the phone and you say, oh, I'm so excited to offer you this job. And they're like, yeah, well, (laughs) 
I took a job with another company. And you're yeah. like, what? But you, but you loved us, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so you can definitely feel a, a little, a little defeated uh, when somebody turns you down. But it does happen, and there's really nothing you can do about it other than to wish them well and let them know that you'll keep their resume on file. And should things not work out with this other company, you'd love to, <laughs> you'd love to talk to them about an opportunity to work with you. But people, when they're job shopping, are not just courting you. They're courting probably, you know, a handful of businesses, five or six jobs, and they're yeah. interviewing at different companies, and they're making the decision that's best for them and, and their family and their needs. So don't hold it against them. Um, they're just trying to take care of family and trying to take care of their needs. Um, but it, it definitely can be disheartening for sure. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> and so then you just pull your second choice candidate up, right? And decide if you want to offer the job to them instead? Absolutely. And here's here's a key thing that a lot of people don't think about. Don't send decline letters to all of your other candidates until you have a firm yes and a signed offer letter in your hand <laughs> from your ideal number one choice candidate. Yeah, because going <laughs> back to somebody you just told that you're not hiring not is fun. a shitty thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It is the worst feeling ever. You're like kind of a dog with their tail between their legs. And you're just yeah. like, listen, uh, this didn't work out with this other person. And, and you know, automatically they're like, oh, great. Well, I'm second choice. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's just not a good position to put yourself in. So don't tell your other candidates no until you've got that signed off or letter in your hand. Good call. So I, I want to do a whole other podcast on onboarding with you, but I think it might be useful to end the hiring process uh, podcast by talking about how do you set somebody up for success on their first few days, right? You've, you've got the offer letter signed. Um, if you have an employment contract that signed, they've showed up for work. What do you like? What do you, how do you handle those first few days? Yeah, I love this question. And I would love to come back and talk about onboarding because it is a whole different conversation completely. Um, so one of the things that I always tell people, and they usually, I usually get a giggle out of them is make sure that you remember that your new hire is coming that day. And I say that because I have actually had managers who totally forgot that they had a new person starting. And the poor person was sitting in an empty office with no computer and no phone and no manager. Um, that okay, was, I'm here. It's <laughs> not a good experience, right? Eventually, the poor guy came to me and was like, hey, Ashley, um, nobody's shown up yet. And it's like 10 o'clock. And I thought I was supposed to be here at eight, but maybe I was mistaken. I mean, that is a horrible <laughs> experience. How do you think that poor guy felt about his first right. day at the job? Oh, that's Probably awesome. Probably not so good. Yeah. So how do we do better <laughs> so than that? <laughs> make sure that it is, yeah, like make sure it is on your calendar. Make sure that you block off that whole first day to do nothing but focus on that person. And I know that that sounds, oh my gosh, completely impossible. But I promise you, if you can give that employee an exceptional first day experience, they will leave feeling like a million bucks and they will come back to work every day with an excitement that you just can't even imagine. Um, spending time with them, talking to them about some of the, the fun things and the cool things and the exciting things about your company and not just beating them over the head with, you know, a bunch of paperwork and here's our handbook and here's your job description. And this is what I expect out of you. And here's how you log into email and here's how you use your phone. And here's how you, you know, a lot of times people make the mistake of just coming in really heavy handed that first day because they're just 
dumping and offloading all of this stuff Mm -hmm. onto this poor new person. And it's just not the best way to get them started. So making sure that day one is really exciting, give them a welcome gift, Um, you know, a welcome basket, or maybe some logo company t-shirt or, uh, you know, something fun that you have in your business that they might be excited about. Um, Take them out to lunch, really make them feel like, you're excited that they're there because they will know whether or not you're excited. And obviously you're going to have to do your new hire paperwork and everybody expects that. And you want to go over some expectations with them on day one, but don't just overwhelm them with nothing but expectations day one. And then through days two through five, you can start building in more of that learning, more of those um, task related things, uh, making sure that they understand what their role is and really ending the week with, having a conversation. How did week one go? What did you um, expect that that we should do in week one? Did we meet your expectations? Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there anything that you didn't get out of week one that you were looking for? Uh, Because the more you can understand what people are needing in that first week, the more you can build a a successful onboarding process down the road. You know, we just um, sort of fell into the trope maybe that Uh, you'll be hiring somebody who's going to be working in your office. But more and more, that's not the case. Our company is remote first Mm. and remote mostly. And I'm, I'm afraid that when people come to work for us on their first day, it may actually feel a bit like that person sitting alone in their office in front of a computer they can't log into because they're just sitting in their own place. And um, and I'm wondering, uh, there are some additional challenges for a remote first workplace and welcoming somebody uh, on those first few days. Um, how might you try and give somebody that feeling of being welcomed to the team and showing them around when they're probably sitting in their own home office or a coffee shop or a co-working space in a different city? I love this. This is such a great question. And a lot of times people think that working with a remote team is easier than working with an no, in-person it's hard as team. Shit. It's far more challenging. <laughs> yeah, it's the hardest thing you've yes. ever done. <laughs> um, so you can kind of tweak some of these things to fit that remote workforce. Um, you know, instead of having a gift basket ready for them on their desk, have a subscription service, send a gift basket to their house so that they still get that welcome. Um, if you can't have lunch with them, maybe send them a gift card in that gift basket and say, Hey, I want you to take yourself to lunch today and really enjoy an hour of time on us just to, you know, reflect on this new job and, and how you're, you know, going to be helping us change the world. Um, You can have a a project management platform like Asana or Trello, or there's one called Monday, where you can get the person all set up in there and assign tasks and, um, you know, really help them kind of see how all of their job pieces fit together within the organization. Um, That really gives you the opportunity to communicate in real time uh, with your team members as they're doing their work. And you can see when they're marking things off and when they're, when they're getting things done and you can assign due dates and, and project management tools are really a lifesaver for virtual teams. Um, another thing you could do is hop on Skype or Zoom or another video conference, spend face-to-face time with them as much as possible on that first day. Maybe you get together for an hour in the morning and then an hour in the afternoon and an hour before you close up for the day. And you're spending three hours on on Skype or Zoom with them, but you're giving them the FaceTime that they need to build that relationship with you. So that way, when they have questions, they don't feel awkward coming to you. Or when they have a problem, they don't feel like they're a bother. So as much as you can really 
integrate them into your world that first day and that first week, it's going to be critical. So Ashley, we've covered a lot of ground and with a lot of great information, although I'm afraid it was uh, even more cursory than we would like it to be, even though we kind of, I hope we t took our time. But <laughs> so if you want more, um, Ashley has a lot of great information on her website, which is sprouthr.co. That's C-O. And hopefully we'll have you back soon to talk about the next steps. I would love to come back and talk about the next steps. This has been fantastic. Thanks so much again for having me on, Sam. Yep. Thanks for being here. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.